Hey friends, it's Melvin. Thanks for tuning into this episode. Here's just a few quick things I wanted to notify you guys about before we get started. First up, very soon, new episodes will be releasing Wednesday mornings rather than Tuesday. So don't panic if you don't see a new episode on Tuesday. Just wait a little longer and you'll see it in your feed. Second, we've introduced a mailbag. Check those show notes and toward the bottom you'll see a mailbag link. You'll then be able to text us any questions you might have about movies, the movie industry, or any movie-slash-Christian-related questions you might have. Then we'll respond in a future episode, so send us your questions now. Up next, Patreon polls, which are available to Patreon supporters at the $3 tier or higher, have been updated. Supporters can now suggest films or shows to be reviewed at the end of each month. The two most liked submissions will become the options for the Patreon poll, so if you want to hear us talk about your favorite movie or show, join our Patreon and start campaigning. And lastly, whether you're a new or long-time listener, please consider writing a review or rating the Cinematic Doctrine podcast on iTunes and Spotify. Apart from financially supporting on Patreon, these are the two most helpful ways to support the show. And that's it. Enjoy the episode. Hi, my name's Melvin, and Jesus is King. Welcome to Cinematic Doctrine, a non-spoiler Christian movie podcast where we sit at the table of cinema and eat. Tonight we'll be dining on The Hughes Brothers' The Book of Eli. There's an unspoken list of movies that Christians like. Basically, if you walk into a church, you know you can mention titles like The Lord of the Rings, The Princess Bride, and Braveheart, and most everyone will know what you're talking about. On that list is another film that released in 2010, and that movie is The Book of Eli. I remember hearing some people talk about it at my private school, a couple churchgoers mentioning it every now and then, and I even remember going to a friend's house for a birthday party where his parents were okay with us watching it despite it being rated R. That might not sound all that abnormal to some of you, and it's not like I grew up in a comically conservative religious household, but my parents were careful and patient about introducing new things to me, so when they said it was cool that I go over and watch this R-rated post-apocalyptic action flick, it was kind of neat. Of course, after watching it, I understood why they were ultimately cool with it, but even then, there's a bit of irony to it. Suffice to say, there's quite a lot we can talk about with the Book of Eli, so let's at least get you guys a quick synopsis so you know what we're talking about. It's the year 2043, and everything's a desolate wasteland. Craters form the landscape, the sky is brown and gray, the sun blisters the skin, and comfort is a thing of the past. Denzel Washington plays Eli, a man on a mission. Carrying his backpack, a machete, and a pistol, he's headed west. Something's out there. He knows it. And no matter what gets in his way, he must reach it. So he walks endlessly along empty roads and a sandy primary in search of whatever's out there. When he rests, he reads from a large book that's kept secure in his backpack. He can handle himself just fine, cutting down thieves and fending off bandits of all sizes, but criminals are nothing compared to the endless thirst of the wasteland, and soon he stumbles upon a small town where he plans to refill on water and take a brief break before continuing his journey out west. But Carnegie, played by Gary Oldman, has a different idea. As leader of the town and a collector of pre-war books, Carnegie is in search of something special, and after witnessing Eli take down thugs with ease, he wants Eli to join him. He would be an asset to the protection of the town and the search for pre-war literature. But Eli declines, interested only in furthering his venture. As such, Carnegie does whatever he can to keep Eli in tow, and Eli 
recognizing the danger unfolding, keeps his book secure, reading it daily, and plans an escape. The Book of Eli is rated R for some brutal violence and language. Brutal violence sounds about right, yet it's not comically grotesque, nor is it shocking. At least not all the time. I think there's one moment that was intentionally supposed to garner a chuckle out of the audience, but otherwise the violence in this film is portrayed in a realistic manner. So if someone loses a limb, it looks about as painful as it would in real life, and so on. I will say that, at the very least, because the film is saturated with an almost grayscale, sepia-looking filter, a lot of the graphic violence doesn't look nearly as stark or vile as it might if we were treated to the naturally colored film. As for the language, it's not pervasive, but there's a fair amount of F-words alongside some other curse words that are delivered throughout the runtime. Also, and this isn't mentioned in the certificate, there's some implied sexual content. It's hard to describe, so I'll say it this way. Within the confines of this post-apocalyptic world, the actions of certain characters imply sexual assault or promiscuity. However, apart from aggressive struggling and cries for help, we aren't shown anything visually. Now, before we take a look at the Book of Eli, I wanted to share real quick that if you've come to enjoy Cinematic Doctrine and would like to support the show, be sure to leave a review on your respective podcast app at the end of this episode. You can also check out two new shows featured under Cinematic Doctrine called Trailer Talk and Monthly Movie News if you're interested in more content. And be sure to check out CinematicDoctrine.com where you can also get connected with our social media. Also, Cinematic Doctrine has a Patreon. For as little as $3 a month, you can join other patrons and vote on a movie I review once a month, as well as take joy in feeding my coffee addiction. Any amount is appreciated with multiple tiers to choose from, all of which go toward making Cinematic Doctrine the best podcast it can be. Ever remember seeing a movie with your friends in high school, but the memory of it feels like a dream or a faded memory? You know you saw that movie, but you don't remember a single thing from it. Well, I like, I, I remembered stuff from the Book of Eli, in fact I remembered quite a lot, but it was waxed over with this dreamlike experience, so this rewatch felt strangely like my first time. And unfortunately, I think that's the experience for a lot of people. If you've already seen it, it's probably a movie that's been tossed in the back of your head, or you've had the film explained to you and therefore spoiled, so you'll never check it out. I mean, let's get this out of the way. There's a characteristic about the Book of Eli that seriously jumps the shark for most people. It's a characteristic that is just way too weird, and a lot of people write it off because of that. But I just watched this movie a few days ago, and if I'm being frank, the whole movie is weird, so I don't know why people were shocked by the twists and turns it takes. Maybe that's another reason it's kind of fallen to the wayside. It's undeniably strange. I mean, at times this movie feels like an anime. Over-the-top action sequences, bizarre characters, a brooding protagonist, an otherworldly setting. There's a lot of really strange things about this movie. And maybe that's why the film kind of jumps around in people's heads. It's so strange that you suppress it, but it's kind of hard to contain. At least that's how it was for me, and I'm glad I was reminded of it because it was a lot of fun to check out again. The world itself, despite having that 2010 uncanny blue screen vibe, feels well-constructed and convincing, especially during practical set pieces where there's little in the way of special effects. Supporting characters speak and act as though they have a lot more to their history than we experience in the film. And despite our main characters, Eli and Carnegie, carrying the story on their shoulders, it's great to have a story that doesn't play all of its cards immediately from the get-go. Like, they are the movie, and yet you could be well over the midway point of the movie's two-hour runtime, and you're still learning some new things about both Eli and Carnegie. Which, as I say that out loud, is interesting because both characters are a bit cartoonish. 
Eli wears these awesome shades and has a cool survivalist outfit, is an incredibly well-trained fighter, and never seems all that worried for his well-being. Meanwhile, there's Carnegie, who at times almost seems evil for evil's sake, when he roughhouses a woman or encourages a twisted form of capital punishment. But also, they have a lot of layered aspects to their characters, too. Eli is determined, comfortable, and diligent, and Carnegie is intelligent, cunning, and intuitive. It's a real have-your-cake-and-eat-it-too kind of situation, which I think many stories don't do very well. The difficulty in trying to do both is a loss in tone. Written poorly, a character that is both cartoonish yet realistic becomes unconvincing. They become unpredictable. And while it's good for a story to be unpredictable, you don't want it to jump the shark, which ironically some people feel this film does. To make this clearer, let me describe it this way. Movies are like bowling. You know where you want the ball to go, but sometimes you're not sure where it's headed. Are you going to hit the first pin or one in the back? Hopefully you land a strike, but a spare is good too. Now, the story is the ball, and you don't know where it's going to go, but you want it to hit the pins. But stories aren't a straight path, they go this way and that, and unfortunately this isn't your average 11-pound bowling ball. It's going haywire. You'll have tension because your ball just dived to the left, and now it's careening to the right and skimming across the edge of the gutter. And this isn't simply an act of tension building. The story is going hogwild because stories are filled to the brim with plot points that at times risk throwing you off. And in the book of Eli's case, it's throwing two main characters that are both parts cartoonish, the ball taking a hard left, and somewhat nuanced, the ball taking a hard right. To balance that out, you have some amazing action set pieces that keep your mind a little numb, and let me tell you, these action sequences are brilliant, as well as some well-plotted mystery and intrigue to the world of the Book of Eli. These settle some things down just before they toss in your direction some of the most blatant product placements I've ever seen in a movie, let alone a post-apocalyptic one. And that's after you realize the whole driving force of the conflict in this movie is because of a book. At some point, you'll probably be wondering to yourself, why didn't I turn on the bumpers? But unfortunately, movies aren't like that. And by this point, when the story finally kicks into gear and is about to hit those pins, you know the third act climax is coming, and sometimes that means one last deviation from the pins. Here's what will make it or break it. Here's what will make the film all the worthwhile or completely ruin the experience. This is where some stories can jump the shark, causing the ball to skip right over the gutter and into another lane. You didn't expect that at all, and now the story is lost entirely. But for me, I, I don't think the Book of Eli does this. Maybe I'm just tired of the same old, same old stories, but something about the weird nature of the Book of Eli is simply charming to me. This isn't just a post-apocalyptic survival film. It isn't merely some sort of end-of-the-world revolutionary tale. And with only four action sequences, it's hard to call the film explicitly an action film. Not to mention, it has a bit more to offer in a cerebral sense when it comes to the dialogue, storytelling, and all-around message of the film. And maybe that last thing, the thing about the dialogue, storytelling, and message, is a little hyperbolic. It's not that the film is abundant with top-notch offerings. I think the film is good, if not bordering on great, with its melting pot presentation. But the Book of Eli offers a bit more than your run-of-the-mill movie. So we know that Eli has this book, and we know that Carnegie pillages and loots for literature, searching for one book in particular. It's a book of power, he often says. Its power is so astronomical that after the war, people were collecting copies of it and burning it en masse because they believe the book to be a key reason for the war. 
This book has a power to grip people, take hold of them. It can be used to inspire, but it can also be used to enslave. And as Carnegie says, if he wants to expand his empire, if he wants to, in his words, save humanity, he needs this book. First off, I think there's a fascinating reality to what's being said. Words have power. They can be the salt on a dish or salt in a wound. They can make or break your day. They can define who we are and what we say, and when they're written down for the whole world to see, they almost transcend their conversational limitations. Books can be described as a one-way conversation. When I read a book written decades, centuries, a millennium ago, I'm engaging in a one-way communication with those who have long passed, and there's something mind-boggling about that reality. Literature is also very intimate. An author has the impeccable capability to get inside your head, paint images of all kinds, and even shape your perspective in ways you never thought possible. So the mere idea that a single book could have that power even if it sounds at times absurd, isn't all that unreasonable. I think this is especially clear as Christians, as our primary understanding of who God is has been provided in a written format, a book, so we know firsthand the immense power that books can have. Now, there's something really interesting I want to cover about the book of Eli that I really can't dig into unless I give a soft, soft spoiler warning. What I'm about to cover is something revealed about 20 minutes into the two-hour runtime, so for many people it wouldn't be considered a spoiler, but for me, I feel like it's a small revelation that's important. So if you haven't seen The Book of Eli, now would be a good time to check out. And good thing for you, the movie is streaming on Netflix, so maybe you can give it a go and then return to this episode. Otherwise, let me give you a second to close out of the app or switch to a different podcast if you're worried about having anything spoiled. Alright, so you stuck around. Cool. Basically, the spoiler I wanted to talk about was what the book was, and the larger ramifications surrounding it. If you haven't already picked up on context clues, the book that Eli carries and the book that Carnegie wants is a Bible. It's a KJV Bible, to be exact, and I find that a little funny since the movie could be considered the most expensive KJV propaganda in the world, you know, since some people think the KJV is the only proper way to engage scripture. Of course, we know that's not true, but it's nice to poke fun. First off, the fact that it's a Bible is largely what attracts most Christians to the Book of Eli. It's the reason I started out with the idea that, in some Christian circles, this is one of those movies you can sometimes hear people talking about, and while that's fascinating in its own right, considering it's an R-rated flick, I think there's something that is equal parts more interesting and potentially more damaging. Gary Whitta, writer of the Book of Eli, is an atheist. In an interview on Wired's The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy podcast, Gary Witta says, It's funny. A lot of people who see the movie assume that I'm a Christian. I'm not at all. I'm an atheist. But I'm fascinated by the way religion and spirituality and faith does motivate people. In the Book of Eli, Carnegie says, regarding the Bible, that the book is a weapon. You can see a bit of where that line comes from when Gary Witta says, You've got Mother Teresa on one side who took her religious faith and turned it into a way to help people and be a tremendous positive force in the world. And then on the other side of the world, you've got things like ISIS and Jimmy Swaggart and these kind of people who have turned religion basically into a big confidence trick or an excuse to kill people. He then says, Whether or not it motivates people to do good in the world or bad in the world is the conversation that I wanted the movie to have. There's plenty more from this interview that he covers, and I'll leave a link to the interview in the show notes, but I think I want to touch on a few things here. 
First off, Witta is sort of touching on a cultural discussion here, how a core tenet of culture is a worldview, and how that worldview motivates and encourages social norms, justice, hope, etc. I think he's spot on about that, and I think most would agree, a culture needs something to believe in. Another thing he touches on is a matter of power, a matter of the overarching influence worldviews can have. I briefly talked about this earlier in the episode, how as Christians we recognize the power of words, the power of books, and how scripture is a grade A example of what sort of power comes from a page, a worldview, a style of life. What Witta is most fascinated about is the use of such power, and how on the one side, this power can be used for selfish gain, or on the other, genuine care and love. Again, this isn't new to us as Christians, this two-sided coin. Gary Witta mentions organizations like ISIS, sure, but he also targets Jimmy Swaggart. Swaggart was a televangelist who was caught up in a series of scandals that accrued over the years, finally ending with an inflammatory statement he delivered at the pulpit in 1991. Looking straight into the eyes of his congregation, who were fully aware of his heinous sins, Swaggart declared, The Lord told me it's flat none of your business. I don't need to dig much further into that. If you've listened to my episode on Amazon Prime's The Boys, or simply keep up with the news, there are plenty of situations where church authorities have arrogantly defended their sin rather than recognize their need for Christ. And that's without even looking at characters like Joel Osteen or Todd White, who aren't actually Christians anyway. It's not abnormal for evil people to exploit others by using scripture. And let's face it, this shouldn't be a surprise to anyone. Even Satan himself tried to use scripture against Jesus when he tempted him in the desert. But I think the most pressing question about all of this is whether or not we feel comfortable with a film like The Book of Eli containing biblical themes when it's written by an atheist. This sounds like a really jaded, almost bigoted question, as though certain themes present in the Bible can't be used by anyone to write a story. Yet the irony is that this has been the case for years. Stories always have heroes, villains, rises and falls, and when we look at scripture and recognize that God wrote it before creation even existed, as a Christian we would nod our heads and go, well, everyone is passively influenced by God in scripture. That's general revelation, after all. They may not intimately know God, but they all know of God, so naturally there are things that they do that exhibit this truth. But I still think it's a question worth asking and one that I'd like to try and answer. I think we can feel comfortable with a non-Christian using biblical themes. It's a matter of how they're used and how we step away from it. For instance, I don't watch the Book of Eli and think to myself that it's on par or as valuable as the lessons taught in Scripture. Nothing can ever be that, and if that happens, then we need to have a different discussion. But what I do get to see is an explicit image of general revelation as mentioned before. General revelation is the idea that everyone passively knows the Lord exists simply through his creation. This is evidenced in Psalm 19, 1 and 2, which reads, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. In other words, if we as Christians find the book of Eli fascinating on the basis of the way it portrays certain Christian characteristics, we can attribute this to things like general revelation, where everyone has a passive understanding of God himself. This is why we can find so many other non-Christian stories so captivating. There are certain qualities about these stories that exhibit biblical truths because everyone, in a general sense, has a general understanding of the Lord. 
In fact, the biggest difference between a Christian and a non-Christian in this case is that the Christian simply knows where these good things, a hero's victory, a savior coming in at the 11th hour, a beautiful moment of romance, or a convicting moment of truth, all come from. The non-Christian is left wandering to find out why good and, conversely, why evil. And yet I can't help but think about one other thing that Gary would have said in his interview. He says, It's impossible, I think, for Eli to do the things that he does and for his journey to end the way it does unless you subscribe to the notion that in the fictional universe of this film, there is actually a real God watching over him. Well, let me tell you, Gary Whitta, it's impossible to think I can do the things I do and end up where I am now if not that I subscribe to the notion that in our very real universe, there is actually a real God watching over me. This is why something called special revelation is so important. Special revelation is the truth of the Lord revealed through scripture, through the Bible, through the word of God itself. General revelation is sufficient in proclaiming the Lord's existence, and Paul later reiterates this idea in Romans 1.20, but includes something very important about general revelation. In it, he writes, talking about God, For his invisible attributes, namely, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. The idea that they are without excuse is with regards to humanity that we know what's right, know who God is, but deny him, and the only reason humanity can be accused of doing wrong is if they know what is right in the first place. You couldn't blame a child for sticking a fork in an outlet if they never knew how dangerous it was in the first place. But in this example, we are the child, and we know how dangerous it is to stick a fork in an outlet. The problem is, we do it anyway, and so we're at fault for hurting ourselves, and subsequently causing a power outage. We affect ourselves negatively, and we affect those around us when we stick a fork in an outlet, or to put it more plainly, when we sin. Therefore, special revelation is required in understanding the saving grace of the Lord. Presented through Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and made plain through Scripture, we see the solution to our sins, our repeated act of sticking a fork in the outlet. The problem is that we keep doing that over and over despite knowing that there is a God who, A, is infinitely more powerful than we are, and B, hates that we keep sticking the fork in the outlet. And as the Lord opens his mouth to tell us that a fork should not go in an outlet, or rather, as he tells us how we should live through scripture, we hear explicitly what it is that the Lord wants, and that's what scripture is. Scripture is an explicit expression of what the Lord wants from us, perhaps the most basic way to understand what it is the Lord wants from us. Because at the end of the day, in general revelation, we fall short in our understanding of the Lord. We can see that the world is in need of a savior. We can see that there are little saviors in political revolutions, a friend swooping in to pay our bills. But we don't always interpret those acts as gifts and graces from the Lord, nor does it often bring our minds to the ultimate gift and grace presented through Christ. But the Gospels? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Those are pretty explicit examples of the gift in Christ. You can't get plainer than that, and the whole of Scripture is there too. And even then, let's be frank, our interpretations of Scripture can still be lacking. During the late medieval period, there was a big struggle in the church to recognize that a quote-unquote biblical foundation in geocentricity, the idea that the sun, moon, and planets all revolve around the earth, was absolute garbage. 
Scripture doesn't teach a scientific perspective of the universe. Passages that say the sun rises and sets do not speak into how the universe functions on a mathematical, scientific level. Anyone with a literary understanding how we translate images and thoughts onto paper would know that, but it was still something that people interpreted from Scripture, and the revelation that we live in a solar system, not a Terra system, caused the way we interpret Scripture to change. That is not to say that Scripture is wrong. On the contrary, it reinforces two things. One, humans are the fallible factor when it comes to the interpretation of who God is. And two, God is always infallible, whether he presents himself through nature or in scripture. I recognize that that can sound pretty damning, as though I'm declaring it impossible to know who God truly is regardless of whether we're looking at general or special revelation. But in reality, it should encourage us to increase our dependence on the Lord to make himself known to us in his own time. I mean, let's talk practically here. When you communicate with a friend, you don't know everything about them at once. And at other times, you misunderstand what they say or do. But eventually, things will make more sense the more you learn about them. All in all, we learn about the Lord through scripture, creation, and even one another. As it's important to remember, it's other people who recognize that the earth revolved around the sun. And it's other people who help us recognize our own faults. Now, it may sound like I've gone way off the doctrinal deep end. Like, Melvin, come on, this is a movie podcast too. What does this have to do with the Book of Eli? Well, kind of a lot. I mean, come on, what does it mean when an atheist writes a character like Eli who reads his Bible daily, can quote scripture with ease, depends entirely on the Lord even in the face of death, prays regularly, and perhaps my favorite, confesses his faults and recognizes he does not always live up to the standards the Lord demands of him. I may sound rather cynical here, but how many people do you know at your church who are like that? Heck, let's think about ourselves. Are we even like that? Do we confidently confess our faults and recognize that we don't live up to the standards the Lord demands of us? Besides, if this is the kind of movie Gary Whitta can write without knowing who the Lord is, imagine the sort of stories he could write if he really knew who the Lord was. To know the Lord's love and sacrifice in Jesus Christ and the freeing joy in Christ's kingship. Suffice to say, the book of Eli, just in this very episode of Cinematic Doctrine, is evidence enough of its overload of general revelation. And that alone makes the connection. But that doesn't mean it has what scripture offers in the gift of Christ. If it did, Gary Whitta might know the Lord in a different saving way. So pray with me, would you? That the Lord would show himself for who he really is in Gary Whitta's life. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Cinematic Doctrine. If you've seen the book of Eli, what did you think of it? Do you think this film is as interesting as I do, or do you think it's just too weird? If you're listening on Cinematic Doctrine's website, let me know in the comments below, or shoot me an email to cinematicdoctrine at gmail.com. If you're on Letterboxd, I have a list compiling every movie I've reviewed on Cinematic Doctrine with direct links to those episodes, so be sure to check that out. And consider following me on Letterboxd for quick, bite-sized reviews on every movie I watch. If you'd like to support the show, drop on over to Cinematic Doctrine's Facebook page and be sure to follow for updates on episodes, movie news, and my usual shenanigans. From there, you can also get connected with Cinematic Doctrine's Facebook group and join the conversation. You can also support the show by leaving a review for Cinematic Doctrine on your respective podcast app. And if that's not enough, head on over to Cinematic Doctrine's Patreon. For as little as $3 a month, you can join other patrons and vote on a movie I review once a month, as well as take joy in feeding my coffee addiction. Any amount is appreciated with multiple tiers to choose from. 
All of it goes toward making Cinematic Doctrine the best podcast it can be. A special shout out to those who supported the Art House Theater tier. Thank you so much, Mom and Dad. You're the best. All of this will be available in the show notes. Until next time, stay cool. Want some Cinematic Doctrine swag? You're in luck. We've got 3-inch Cinematic Doctrine logo stickers exclusive for Patreon supporters. Perfect for your travel mug or laptop. Head over to patreon.com forward slash cinematic doctrine, link in the show notes, and choose the independent theater tier. Doing so will net you other perks too. But let's be real, the podcast stickers are the coolest perk. So get yourself some podcast stickers by supporting on Patreon.